We're in Hebrews 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 uh, this morning. We've been talking at least the last couple of weeks about this word uh, priest. And when you think about priest, your mind may go to things in our society, maybe uh, uh, the Catholicism, and think about the guy that wears the black getup and sits in the confessional booth. But that's really not a good understanding of the word priest because what which first comes to our minds when we think of the word priest is an in- intercessor, somebody that goes between. And that's why Catholics go to confessionals because they believe that a priest sits there as sort of a mediator between them and God. Now we know, based on what we're about to see it this morning, why that's not good doctrine, because Jesus is our great high priest, and there needs be no other, right? There need be no other to go between God and man other than the God-man. That sounds about right, right? And we've been talking about this, and the priesthood of Jesus, we started talking about this conversation uh, last week. Now listen, I understand that this is very heady, as we say, right? There's a lot, this is maybe to bog us down, and I don't mean to do that. Uh, I want to keep moving us forward. I understand when we talk about the priesthood of Jesus, just the, the name of that may, for some of you guys, be like, that's just not very engaging to me. Like, that's already confusing right out of the gate. Not a good start. Pastor, can't you preach something more applicational? Maybe talk about the big miracles of Jesus or the familiar words of Paul. The priesthood can maybe seem a bit boring or irrelevant to your life. Maybe not as engaging as those other big things. But listen, I'm going to suggest to you that the priesthood of Jesus, you may not know it by that name, but that is the center puzzle piece of a puzzle that is made up 80% by that one puzzle piece. This is very important what we're talking about. You know, if I were to get up here and talk about uh, a world-renowned kidney doctor and talk about all of his experience with liver surgery and talk about his academic successes and clinical successes and his career credentials, that may be a, a real snooze fest to you until you figure out that you have kidney cancer. Then it becomes the most important thing in the world, right? I say that because of this. This subject may seem boring, but if you know your soul's condition, there is nothing more amazing than the godsend that is our high priest. You need him. We have to know that this is a need that we're talking about this morning. Our souls, though, and this is the good news, are in the hands of a qualified high priest, and we're going to talk about why that's so important this morning, all right? Hebrews 5, let's look at it. Should be on the screen behind me, and we're going <clears> to <throat> really dive deep here this morning, okay? Hebrews 5, starting in verse 1, it says this. For every high priest <clears throat> chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you're my son, today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now already you hear that guy's name twice and you think, First of all, solid pronunciation of that one. I've read it a few times, so that's okay. 
But we're going to talk about this guy, not just this morning, but at great length in, in a few weeks in the chapters that are going to follow. But first, we've got to realize something, and that is that this book, the book of Hebrews, was written not to American eyes and ears and an American audience, but to Jewish eyes and ears, to people with a Hebrew heritage, right? And so as we consider that, we have to realize already in this book, we've seen some things that are obviously tailored to a specific audience. He's, this whole book is about the greatness of Jesus, right? How much greater he is. In fact, that word is used many, many times talking about the greatness of Jesus. And we've already seen this as the author has said he's greater than the angels. Again, something that would be pertinent to a Jewish audience. Talking about he's greater than Moses or than Joshua, Moses and Joshua, heroes of the Jewish heritage. And then finally we're here where it says that Jesus is greater than the priesthood. Now remember, when you hear the word priesthood, I want you to hear mediator. He's greater than the office that you know as the traditional office of mediator. Now, why is a mediator necessary? That's where we got to start, right? Why was a mediator necessary in this people group? Well, the reason why, and it's not just for this people group, the Jews, but it's for all peoples, right? Because God is, as we say, holy, 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 right? He is set apart in every way. He is absolutely sinless. He's different than us because we are not sinless. We are sinful, right? In fact, born into this world, you don't have to teach anybody how to live for number one, do we? That is natural. And I always say this, but if you don't believe that, just go to the nursery, sit there for 30 seconds, and you will hear mine, mine, mine. Because you don't have to teach that. That's a doctrine that is engraved on the hearts of human beings. Sin, right? And because of sin, we are just like Adam and Eve, by the way, in Genesis chapter 3, separated from the presence of God. And we're not just separated from the presence of God in this life, but for eternal life. We are separated from the presence of God because of the problem of human sin. God is holy, 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 and we are not. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, there's no one exempt from that. All have sinned, right, and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is death, separation, which is, again, we see this in the person of Adam and Eve. And Colossians 1.21 says it this way, and I think of this as pertinent to our conversation today. And you, he says, who were once, notice these two words, alienated and hostile. Hear them again. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Listen. There is a holy God, and there is sinful man. And we don't come into this world neutral. Please hear this. We come alienated, meaning distant, and hostile, meaning shaking our fist at him. Okay? That's our natural disposition. And our eternal disposition is separation from a holy God. Now listen, this is why this is important. The priesthood then was a gift. An office that mediates two parties that are hostile at conflict, that God gives this gift of a priesthood that says, a mediator that says, I'm going to take the two parties that are far off, and God says, we can be near. I mean, what a gift, right? It's a, it's a temporary sort of a shadow of a reversal of the fracture of Eden. A human mediator to make regular, and we also would see this, right? Regular, temporary, sort of band-aid sacrifices where they were buying time, but really nothing permanent ever happened. And the reason, by the way, they were given the sacrificial system, another gift, is because of what it says in Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. That's our problem, by the way, we're impure. But through the law, through sacrifices, everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
I showed you a diagram last week, and if you've got that, go ahead and throw that diagram up there. This room called the Holy of Holies, which you'll see sort of on the far left side of that image, represented the figurative dwelling place of God. And the high priest, who was, it was one person in the office of high priest, would go in one time a year into the Holy of Holies, this figurative dwelling place of God, this figurative throne room, and he would bring a blood sacrifice. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. A gift, right? This is a gift from God. The priesthood, a gift from God that people who are alienated and hostile toward him can be temporarily brought near. I say temporarily, it was a band-aid fix because they did it every year, right? It was constantly a need. And so they were buying their time each and every year that went by. Band-aid sacrifices without a permanent solution. But then, you can take that down, but then a greater high priest would come. A great high priest would renew the office and transform what that really looked like. And remember, written to Jewish eyes and ears, they were tied to a millennia-old system, right? Priesthood, priesthood, he dies, and the next act comes, and the next act comes. They do temporary band-aid sacrifices, and then the author of Hebrews says, there's been another. And he has permanently transformed the role. Look to the greater, okay? That's the emphasis of this letter because he's worthy of their worship and worthy of ours. Now listen, I always usually do something on the screen behind me, and I'm gonna do that again this morning, but the way we're gonna do it is gonna be different than anything that we've done before. I've never really preached a message like this before, so that's a good way to start, right? Roll the dice and see what happens. Um, the structure's gonna be a little different. We're gonna contrast sort of the typical office of high priest with what we see in Jesus. So you can go ahead and throw sort of the, the skeleton up there. <clears throat> on the left, you're gonna see what are the roles of, and sort of the qualifications of a typical high priest. And on the right, we'll get to this sort of at the end because this is broken into two sections, verses one through four and five through 10. We're gonna be a little, I hate to say this, but we're called a heady for the first little bit of our message. And then at the very end, we're gonna really backload and hammer some application. It's a very straightforward and simple message, even though it's gonna take some time to get there. Make sense? All right, let's look at this. The first thing, typical high priest, is that they would make ongoing sacrifices, that they were a priesthood with an expiration. That expiration was uh, they would die, <laughs> okay? No one was priest forever because all of them eventually died. They made ongoing sacrifices. And you see this right out of the gate in chapter five, verse one. It says, every high priest. High priest is only one guy. How would there be every, many of them? Because they would die, right? They had an expiration date. It says there are many because they would die, just like we have many presidents because our presidents have died, right? The next thing that it says is that the, priest, the high priest was chosen from among men. And this is a very important qualification for anybody that would be a high priest. Keep going in verse one. Chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Remember what we talked about that relationship? Hostile, alienated, not good, right? This person chosen from among men act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice it says chosen from among men. That doesn't mean from among males. It means from among mankind, right? human beings. In other words, this is someone chosen from among the human beings to represent them. Just a week or two ago, we had the midterm elections, right? And one of the things that we were voting on were the house of what? Representatives, okay? Representatives. You know what the qualifications are for a house of representatives member? Well, you may guess these, but a representative has to be at least 25 years old. They have to be a United States citizen. Why? Because they're representing United States citizens, but also they have to be an inhabitant of the state that he or she represents. 
Why? Because they're represented, right? It would be weird for us to vote on a, represent- a representative from Mississippi that lived in Vermont because they wouldn't care about our interests, right? They wouldn't even be a good representation of us. No, the best way for someone to be able to represent a group is to come from that group. In Old Testament Israel, had a system in which that was the case. They came on behalf of men, representing them in relation to God. A hostile relationship, remember, one full of sin versus God's holiness. You see, their desire was that their high priest would be the best of them, faithful and obedient because he's their representative. The big thing here is that that office of priesthood and the sacrifices were ongoing, every one of them. Chosen for a moment, they had to keep going because they would die and make more sacrifices and more sacrifices and more sacrifices. Notice that there's just not a lot of hope in that, right? It's a band-aid, buying time. The second thing is that was, what was needed was solidarity with the people. Solidarity with the people. Meaning that he was a fellow sinner, a high priest was. He was a human being, right? So he'd be a fellow sinner. <clears throat> verse 2 says as much. It says, he can deal gently. I want you to remember that verb. Deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The verb therefore deal gently indicates that priests avoided anger at the people they represented since they themselves were sinners. Right? That would be sort of hypocritical to be like, you guys are so bad. When they themselves got some problems, right? Some of you guys have the parenting motto, learn from my mistakes, right? Or the horrible motto, do as I say, not as I do. That is a terrible motto. You should scrap that from your vocab if you say that to your kids. But we, we say that, right? Learn from my mistakes. And even so, you may be dreading the day that you have to release your kids to college knowing what might be ahead because you've been there. And it's likely that you may even deal gently with your children since you yourself were a sinner in college. Or maybe you won't. Maybe you'll just be a tyrant and a hypocrite. I don't know. But the point is, if we've been there before, don't we typically have a little bit of a softer heart and understanding about that? Yeah? Yeah, we do, right? Because we ourselves are, as it says here, beset with weakness. That's the point, is that high priests are just like the people that they represented. And the word weakness here in verse 2 includes the notion of sinfulness. Look down at verse 3. It says it pretty clearly. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The very first high priest is a guy named Aaron. He was Moses' brother. And back in Leviticus 9, it says that even Aaron, the very first high priest, brought sacrifices on his own behalf before he even brought sacrifices on behalf of the people he represented because he himself was beset with sinful weakness. And so the second qualification, or the first one that we're going to see in full, is that he is, has solidarity with the people he represented. Third, I told you we're going to go quickly through these. Third is that he was divinely appointed. A typical high priest would be divinely appointed as a priest divinely appointed don't miss the word divinely there okay speaking of Aaron the author uses him now in verse 4 to state the next qualification of the typical high priest verse 4 says and no one takes this honor this role high priest for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was Exodus 20 verse 1 is sort of where this is found God appointed Aaron and his sons as priests of the people but the big deal is this hear this people didn't volunteer for this role it also wasn't some election by democratic process God appointed who was to be a high priest and it was passed down through God's divine appointment 
is a special role. You may think a priest, well, isn't that just like a pastor, like a holy man? They don't make a lot of money, so I don't, you know, you're right about that. But you may think, why is that a special role? Well, here, remember the diagram we looked at a moment ago. The Holy of Holies represented the figurative dwelling place of God, a special place where only one guy from all the people could go into. It was a special position to be the high priest. It was a coveted role to be in. Access to the Holy of Holies, access to the figurative throne of God. Not even kings, not even David was granted access into the Holy of Holies. The weight of interceding between God and man, it was coveted after with major consequences on three different occasions. You may have read about Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. A guy named Korah wasn't a priest, wasn't from the line of Aaron, and he said, I want to be priest. I can do that. I'll just go and, and do that thing. And there became a revolt between Moses and Aaron and Korah and this rebellion of people. And you know what happened? God split the earth open, swallowed them, and then closed it over them because they coveted a position that they were not appointed to. And not just him. King Saul, you ever wonder, like, what happened with King Saul? Like, he was, he was the guy, he was the tall, dark, and handsome, and then all of a sudden, scrawny little David takes over. You know why? They wanted Saul to be king. God told them it wasn't going to go well. And then one day, Saul said, I'm the king, and I can do all these things, but I can't make sacrifices. I can't do that role. And so you know what he did? He took the role. He said, I can do that. And he offered a sacrifice, and then God's prophet Samuel said, can't do that, man. And the kingdom was stripped from him, and his life was never the same. He died in sorrow, right? Another guy, King Uzziah, which was later on even, he entered the temple to burn incense when he had no business doing so. He wasn't appointed by God, and the result from that, he was stricken with leprosy for the rest of his life and died. Had a horrible reputation. You see, this is a coveted position, and it was one that had major consequences because the big thing here is no one takes this honor, verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. It's a position of divine appointment, of representative weight, and the weight of mediating duty. It's a big deal, man. It's an easy transition also in the fact that Jesus is the ultimate version of all of those things that we just read about. So we're going to jump to the other side now, and this is where we're going to kind of see where the rubber hits the road, where the passage sort of takes legs, all right? The structure is going to go in reverse, and you may think, okay, we got A, B, and C, and this may bother some of you guys, but we're actually going to go CBA. I know we really get crazy up in here, all right? But that's the flow of the passage because the, the structure is A, B, C, C, B, A. And you're going to see it very clearly as we move on to verses 5 and 6 in a second. But first of all, I want you to see the letter C on the other side is that Jesus was divinely appointed not only as priest, but also as son. And you could even add to that king, Messiah, right? Jesus had a special divine appointment that no other high priest had ever had before. And so I want you to see already, just look side by side. Is Jesus lesser or greater or the same? He's greater, right? This is what the, the author of Hebrews is saying, is Jesus is greater than what we've had before. You see, in the same way that the typical high priest's position was divinely given, so it is with Christ, but greater. That's why it says in verse 5, so also. Christ, it says, did not exalt himself to be made high priest. You see how it's just an echo of verse 4. He did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, there's going to be two references here to the Psalms. Number one is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In verse 6 is the next one, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll take one at a time. The first reference is in verse 5. It's from Psalm 2, verse 7. And this is what God says, or this is what the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, this is the Lord speaking, you are my son, today I have begotten 
you. This is a messianic psalm that's being quoted here. In the psalm, Jesus is obviously who we see. Later on, we know that. The original author and the original audience did not. But in this messianic psalm, we see that the Messiah is referred to as a son, as we see here, but also as a king. It would later say in the same psalm, Psalm 2, that this person, this son, would reign over the nations. Now, the immediate audience would see, oh, that's talking about David. David didn't reign over the nations. You see what I'm saying? It points to another, and that another is Jesus. He was the Son of God that reigned over the nations, and he was divinely appointed, which is why this verse is here, a son and a king. The second reference is in verse 6 to Psalm 110. Now, this psalm has already been quoted two times in this book. Flip back to chapter 1 in Hebrews. Look back at chapter 1. We've already seen two quotes from this psalm, and I just want you to lay your eyes on them real quick before we move to how it's uh, relevant in our passage today. Psalm 1, verse 5. This is going to sound familiar. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Does that sound familiar? It should. We literally just read that exact same reference. The second one is in verse 13. It says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You see, the Messiah rules as king, but he's also a priest. And the next verse that's quoted from that psalm is Psalm 110, verse 4, that says what we just quoted. You are a priest forever. This Messiah that would come, a intercessor, a mediator forever. Nobody could ever say that before, right? After the order of, and here's this guy's crazy name, Melchizedek. If you're pregnant, that's a good candidate for a boy. Melchizedek. You call him Mel for short, right? There it is. You're welcome. Who is this guy, and why does he matter to what we're talking about this morning? Well, we're going to get to know him better in the next couple of chapters, but I'm going to keep it clean and, and, and short on what we need to know about him pertinent to today's passage. He's mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament, which I think is crazy because the author of Hebrews is very uh, intentional and specific about what he says and usually takes big themes on, but he takes a little theme of Melchizedek and zooms in real tight, only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament. One is in Psalm 110. The other is all the way back in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, he is described as a priest of a different order, not the lineage of Aaron. You see, he preceded Aaron. Aaron was later. He's way later. This guy, Melchizedek, preceded Aaron. So his priesthood is different than the one that God gave to Israel. In fact, Abraham, whenever Abraham has, has a victory under his belt, he brings his spoil from victory and he tithes to Melchizedek. It's, it's kind of unusual to see that this great man of the faith, he sort of answers to this random stranger that God suddenly introduces. He answers him. He gives offerings to him, tithes to him, and Melchizedek pronounces a word of blessing on him. Now, you may be wondering, what is with that name? The name's actually pretty awesome because it's two words that are put together. It's Melech, king. By the way, that's my, ne- my nephew's name. King, and then uh, Zadok, which is righteousness. So who is he? He's known as not just a king, but the king of righteousness. Who else bears that name? Jesus does, right? So in Melchizedek, we hear the king of righteousness. He's also described as the king of Salem. So his name is Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and yet he reigns from Salem, it says, which just means peace. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. You see, Melchizedek is a priest, as he's described as, a, pe- a priest of peace and a king of righteousness. Does that not sound like Jesus? That sounds exactly like Jesus, does it not? 
You see, Jesus is not in his lineage. When it says that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, it doesn't mean that he's a descendant of Melchizedek. That word order simply means that he's defined by the same characteristics of his priesthood. In what way? Is Jesus a king? Sure is. Is Jesus the king of peace? He sure is. By the way, Jesus was heralded as king in Jerusalem, which means the city of peace. I mean, you can't make that up, right? Jesus is also the king of righteousness. How do we know that? Because he's without sin, which is the next thing that we're going to go to, which is up to letter B, and that is that Jesus also had solidarity with his people, yet without sin. Solidarity with his people, yet without sin. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because we touched on it some last week, but Jesus knew well the full range of the human experience, did he not? It's very important that we distinguish that Jesus was not 50% God and 50% man. He was completely both, 100% God and 100% man. And he had to be. To be our high priest, he had to be able to perfectly represent us as a full human being. And we see this in part in verses 7 and 8. And you're going to see what I mean by the structure kind of following a a C and then a B because it's going to connect with verses 2 and 3 above. It says, in the days of his flesh, Talking about being beset with weakness, right? Verse, verses two and three. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, check out how, with loud cries and tears. Does that sound like a God? It sounds like a man, right? With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, divine, right? He learned obedience through what he suffered. Suffered? Does that sound like a God or a man? It sounds like a man. Jesus is both completely divine and yet completely human in solidarity with his people. You know, Gethsemane seems to sort of be in view here. If you're you're familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus was crucified, he prayed a blood-sweating, literally a blood-sweating prayer, bearing this awful weight of sin, empathy and compassion for his brothers and sisters, right? He bore all of that. In his humanity, he was broken, and then he was literally destroyed, crucified, right? The point that's being made here, I think, in verses 7 and 8 is that Jesus' prayers and supplications, please hear this, they weren't a sham. They weren't a sham. Jesus bore human weakness. Though he had every right of divinity, he chose suffering, it says, to learn obedience. What that means is when suffering strikes, human beings are inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it. You know that? When suffering strikes, human beings are just, it's just, it's just nature. It's science, right? That we want to do whatever we can to avoid hurt, to avoid harm. We're inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it. The other day, we were uh, getting popsicles out for my kids. I have, I have four kids, and the oldest is Shiloh. She's six, are with six and then four and then two and then I think five months. But the six-year-old and the two-year-old are the girls, that's Shiloh and Eden. And they were, we said they can go get popsicles. No, not the five-month-old. I'm not a weirdo, okay? But the other three were all getting popsicles, and they went to get them out, and they were those, like, really cheap plastic wrap long ones, you know, that you just, like, free, put them in the freezer, and they're just, like, they're like an IV of sugar. I mean, that's all that they are, right? <clears throat> and so they got them out. I, got, I just grabbed three of them out of there and handed them to the three kids. And I gave, I don't know what color I gave them, but I know that I gave Shiloh yellow, and I'm pretty sure I gave you red to Eden. And Shiloh was displeased with that. She foresaw her own suffering. (laughs) She's dramatic, that's why I say that. I don't know where she gets that from. 
So she has yellow in her hands and she makes this face and what does she do? She does whatever she can to avoid it, right? She goes to Eden, the two-year-old, the gullible one. What do you think happens next? You know. She goes and says, ooh, look at this one, Eden. Look at this one. Look at this one. Look how, look how bright and yellow it is. Don't you love yellow? Ooh, I love this yellow. Ooh, do you, do you want yellow? You see, and what do you think happened? Eden's a sucker and she took it, right? Because she's a baby and Shiloh knew that and she took advantage of her. You see, we don't like to suffer and we will go to great lengths to avoid suffering. And sometimes that means even going through things like deception, manipulation, omission, deception, to avoid suffering. And Jesus was tempted to do the same thing. Jesus instead, though, learned to avoid learn not to avoid suffering, but to trust God and do his will in the midst of suffering. He's a man. He's the God man, but he is a man. God became flesh, Jesus. He got sick. He stubbed his toes. He got discouraged. He vomited. He sobbed. He suffered loss. He felt excruciating pain. He was tempted more brutally than any of us have ever and will ever be, all willingly all without sin. Amazing. And I know you're tempted to say, well, yeah, he's God. He was a man. And because of that, because he knows, he knows, listen, he may not have ever lived in the 21st century in the United States of America, but he knows the full range of the human experience of temptation. And because of that, call him back to verse two, our high priest deals gently with us. He deals gently with you. We were just singing a song a moment ago that talked about the suffering. When you sing about God's faithfulness, some of you guys sing that differently than others. When we talk about he's never failed me yet and he won't, some of you sing that differently. I'm not saying some of you are better than others, more pious and holy. I'm saying some of you have actually been through the fire and flames in ways that others of us haven't. And, and honestly, praise God for his mercy if we haven't. But some of you sing that differently, don't you? Because you know what it's like to lose a mom, what it's like to lose a dad. You know what it's like to sit on that doctor's table and hear you're positive for cancer. Some of you really know what it's like to see a child that has walked away from the faith and you can't sleep at night. And you come into church and you hear, great is thy faithfulness. You've never failed me yet and you won't. Some of you are in a failing marriage. And you have a hard time singing that. Jesus knows and felt the full range of your hurt, your sorrow, your discomfort. And so when you hurt, I want you to know that you have a high priest that deals gently with you, that understands and is there in the trenches with you. And I think a word of application from that is that, please hear this, you can run to God, because he's been there, you can run to God with your suffering, with your sorrow, 
with your anger, with your frustration. You can run to God with your emptiness, with your depression, with your conflict, with your desperation. You can run to him with your needs and your sin and your ignorance and your waywardness, to use the verses above two and three. You can run to him with your shame because by his mercy, you were not met by an unapproachably angry God with a sword, but by an approachable, loving Father grace. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus was willingly limited by his humanity and thus dependent on his Father to meet his needs and to sustain him at all times. He's been there and can deal gently with you because he is representative of us. He had to go through those things if he was going to be sufficient to become the last thing that we're going to see this morning, and it's letter A. We're going to see it in verses 9 and 10, and that is that he is our one and final sacrifice. He is the priest with no expiration. Powerful man. One final sacrifice, the priesthood with no expiration. I want you to see why that's so powerful. We're going to end on a high note here, man. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It says, Being designed, or designated rather, by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's here that you made things a little confusing. First of all, look at the last word of verse 8. It says, What he suffered. And then it says, And being made perfect in verse 9. It says, Basically, he's being made perfect as a result of or through his suffering. Through that, through his suffering, made perfect, he became the source. Now, you may have already put this together, maybe not, but that's almost verbatim what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And you can go back and, and just quickly look at that if you want to, but it's thematically almost identical. Now, when we talked about that last time, I said this and I'll say it again. When it says that Jesus is perfect, what does that mean? Does that mean that there was a point when he wasn't perfect? That's not what that means. Was he sinful before his suffering? No. Perfect here is not a term of progressive morality, but of progressive completion. In other words, it means this, that as he was made perfect, it means he was seen in full view for who he really was and is. In other words, each additional moment that Jesus was perfectly obedient, even in the face of unrelenting temptation, was additional proof of the glory of Jesus. Most of all, his powerful, selfless, obedient, sacrificial, suffering-saving death. The more he went through, the more perfectly we could see, how complete we could see, how marvelous he is. I saw something on the internet, I don't know, Facebook or something, I don't know, who knows. But it was uh, some, the, the, the thing started with a painting. And it, the, you could see the painting, and it was really intricate. And it looked like it was being painted with a brush that was like one bristle. I mean, the smallest little bristle, you could just see it, one little bristle, and you're like, that's kind of weird. And it, was, it turned out to be this really powerful camera. And the camera would zoom out, and you're like, oh, I'm only looking at just like 0.5% of this painting. And as it went further and further, you're like, well, that first thing was, was really a beautiful picture. And now I see that this, that picture of a guy in a boat with a paddle is actually in a massive lake. Oh, now I'm seeing that there are many houses around that lake. And the camera just kept zooming out and out. And you realized that this was an artist that was putting the minuscule, micro, final touches on a massive masterpiece. Now listen. Just because the camera started zoomed in doesn't mean that the painting was any less of a painting. It's just that as the camera zoomed further and further and further out, I became appreciative of the fact that I was looking at something that was only a small fraction of the grandeur of the whole. 
What the author of Hebrews is saying is, the more Jesus lived, the more he suffered, and the more his obedience was challenged and yet proven, the more that camera out and out and out and out, and we saw even greater and greater and greater what a masterpiece of perfection he really was and is. His suffering brought into complete, made perfect, full view, the picture-perfect image of our Jesus. So what it's really saying is, coming into full view, he became the source of eternal salvation, verse 9, to all who obey him. We've got a problem. Holy God, sinful humanity. We've got a problem, and we need a mediator. The priesthood was a gift from God, a human mediator that would come, that God gave them, to make regular, temporary, band-aid sacrifices. Again, simply buying time. And it's in the name, listen, it's in the shadow of that image. Please hear this, look at me. In the shadow of the image of seeing <clears throat> this priesthood that's a gift from God, this cosmic conflict, Jesus steps on the scene and makes not another measly, annual, temporary shadow of a thing of sacrifice. He comes and makes the final, drives the nail into the heart of death and says, it is finished. Everything that the priesthood looked forward to was made final. And the accomplishing work, the final sacrifice of Jesus. That's why Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, not through goats and lambs, not through bulls, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, you may know this one, he made him to be sin, to bear the punishment, the sacrifice, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, not sin, but righteousness, right? The righteousness of God. Jesus made the final sacrifice and proclaimed, it is finished. And in so doing, as the author of Hebrews has just said, he became the source of, from which all of us can say we have eternal life. If there was ever an amen moment, that was it. Guys, that is the good news of the gospel. And hear me say this. You will never stand with God if you never come to the realization that apart from the high priest, you can't. You will never stand with him in glory if you cannot come to the realization that apart from our high priest, you have no business doing so. And he has no expiration. We don't have to wait for another. I love this, and we'll get there, but it's Hebrews chapter seven. You can flip forward if you want. Hebrews seven, 23 through 25. I love this. Kind of brings back this contrast, this comparison. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's what we just talked about, right? But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Guys, that is so comforting, man. Man, is that comforting. We will leave here and we will fall into sin again. You know that? We will fall into sin once more. We will curse. We will be bitter. We will come into our addiction to pornography. We will slip into adultery. We will slip into gossip, gluttony, impatience. We will lack self-control. 
And then what happens after that is when you fail and when you sin again and you become irrationally angry, you lash down, you slander, you know what happens? We think, I have self-doubt. I have heavy guilt. Maybe God won't forgive me. Can I ever stand with him again? And the priesthood of Jesus shines on display. It's only boring if we fail to see that we have a cancer called sin, but our great high priest is the perfect remedy for it. You can't earn it. He did. And the comfort is that there's divine given security in that. None of us will live forever. Not in this life. None of us will live forever. One day you will face the judge and you will need a plea. And there's weak pleas that will be brought to the judge. I did good things. I did religious things. I gave my money. I was in church. None of those will do. There's a song, and I don't know if we sung this song. I, I, I get confused. Before the throne of God above. Are you familiar with that song? It's a modern hymn of sovereign grace. I wanted to read the lyrics to you. We need a plea, church. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Later it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Does the priesthood of Jesus matter? Only for those of us that know we need a physician. Today, if you're here, I hope that the core essential truth the 80% puzzle piece of what makes us a hopeful people. Strength for today, hope for tomorrow, right? The reason we can have that hope tomorrow is not because of a plea that we have our own making. It is a strong and perfect plea that we have a high priest who ever lives and pleads for us. If you're here today and you've been faking it till you make it, and you've been trying to be moral, you've been trying to be a good church person, I'm here to tell you it ain't good one whose righteousness will be good enough and he stands here with an invitation to you that if you would confess your sin before a holy God and say I can't stand before you I need to be held today you can collapse into the arms of Jesus one who deals gently with you gives you that strength for today because of the bright hope of tomorrow before you leave today you know we're not going to have a formal invitation where we sing and have an altar call because this is our response. What better way, what better way to talk about and celebrate the priesthood of Jesus than the bread and the wine, the juice? What better way to celebrate? Today as we enter into this, I don't want you to be head gone, but understand that this is a response, a worshipful response to the good news that we just celebrated. But don't leave today without speaking to someone else about what it means to follow Jesus if you feel this conflict between hostility and alienation between you and God, he, he stands here ready to give you an invitation. Let's celebrate him as we move into the Lord's Supper.